Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. Welcome to the afternoon show. I'm glad we're here at afternoon time. It's Bill Arnold, and I'm going to have a wonderful show for you today. I'm so glad that you are uh, with me. I've got Dr. Mark Muska in studio, which is an hour of Ask the Professor. That's going to be hour one to get things started, which means get your questions over here. I know you've got questions because you always do, and they're always good ones. And I'm always confident that you will, my listener, bring Mark good questions to ask. 877-933-2484. Again, 877-933-2484. 2484. If you don't like remembering numbers, and you can email me, bill at myfaithradio.com. Bill at myfaithradio.com. Mark's been a professor of theology here for 35 years at the University of Northwestern, all around world's nicest guy. I consider him my friend, and I am always thrilled when he's here. Mark, welcome. It's good to be here. Yeah, no Friday kidding. afternoon, that's great. Yeah, and you said you started your day being on Early. campus at 5 a.m., and Early. you're here doing an hour of radio with me. Unbelievable. Uh, so that's, if I don't that's... make sense, just nod yeah. and smile. Yeah, that's but what that's... the psychiatrist said. So. <laughs> that is superhero <laughs> don't status. Don't get me angry. You know? Yeah, superhero. <laughs> Ryan's looking at me kind of cockeyed there. Does he really mean <laughs> that, or is he just uh, pulling yeah. my leg? Yeah, you, so. you make him nervous. We can have can fun tell. with the new guy, though, can't we? Yeah, yeah, have at it. Yeah. Beware, Ryan. It gets really thick. Yeah. All right. So, uh, Mark, where do you want to start? I got lots of questions for you. Well, today. you're the host. I'm the answer guy. So, okay. Um, let's start with. Uh, let's see. Hmm. I've got some good questions here coming in, and I'm going to start with this one. Would you mind asking Mark to address Colossians one twenty four? I simply cannot make sense of what possibly could be lacking in Christ's afflictions. Mm-hmm. I've read the study notes, the application in different versions, and it just remains perplexing to me. Jesus' death was complete and lacked nothing, and no amount of anyone else's suffering could make it more. I would appreciate Mark's uh, take on it. Yeah, that's a good question, and I, I love it when people ask those kind of questions. I hope you read with that kind of inquisitive attitude, because that's the gateway to learning and to figuring things out. I don't know if I have the answer for that, but uh, I think you need to understand what Paul is saying here. Let's just read the passage here. He's talking about Christ here, the 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 uh, uniqueness and majesty of the Lord Jesus Christ. But then he's talking about his Colossian friends remaining uh, faithful to the Lord, and he ends that in verse 23, saying that you have heard which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, was made a minister. So he brings himself into it. And then in verse 24, he says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I do my share on behalf of Christ's body, which is the church, in filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. And then he goes on to talk about his role in the church from that. Uh, The best way that I can work my way through that is to say that Jesus' suffering was sufficient for salvation. There's nothing we can add on that that will somehow make that better. 
However, it wasn't the end of the suffering. Mm -hmm. Once Jesus suffered and died, then Paul points out here, he and others who proclaim this message, they're going to suffer too. Mm -hmm. To proclaim this gospel, it's going to be costly. And Paul gets into plenty of that in his uh, description of himself. I uh, I love what he says just one letter earlier in Philippians 3 when he talks about the value of knowing Christ. And he says uh, in, in uh, Philippians uh, chapter 3, uh, let's see here, verses 10 and 11, he's talking about being found in Christ, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. So Paul knew perfectly well he was going to suffer for proclaiming the gospel. Mm-hmm. And that's this idea of completing the sufferings of Christ. Mm-hmm. Christ was sufficient. We can't add to it, but that doesn't mean that was the end of the suffering. There's going to be plenty more by God's heralds that go out and proclaim that message. And it's even happening today. I've got my buddies in India that I'm making as friends now, these evangelists and church wow. planners. And man, the things they face every week from Hindu radicals as well as Muslim radicals, their lives are at stake many of the times. And so they are suffering for the sake of the gospel. And that is helping to complete the sufferings that Christ already has uh, has uh, blazed the path, path for us, you could say. Yeah, and they probably so, remain fearless, don't they? Oh, it's just a whole different mindset. Yeah. Oh, I mean, yeah. I am so encouraged and amazed. We just had a phone call with them uh, last uh, Thursday, uh, yesterday, yesterday morning, and it was so encouraging to hear the, the strength of their faith and their hope in God in the midst of all this. Mm-hmm. Thank you for that answer, Mark. I'd like to jump now to Genesis chapter 9. I've got a, several questions on this one. I don't know about that. Oh, <laughs> little comedy uh, there. There we go. And That's like Friday that. afternoon dumb humor. Yeah. All right. So. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, Genesis 9, starting in 20, it says, Then Noah began farming and planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and uncovered himself inside his tent. All mm-hmm. right, let's start there. He uncovered himself inside his tent. To me, that sounds like uh, getting ready for bed. Yeah, it sounds like he's naked. You're naked, but you go in your tent and right. you're going to sleep. So what's wrong with that? You got to change, you know. Yeah. So. <laughs> yeah, and maybe you don't have jammies, so you're naked. Yeah, maybe. Let's not. Okay, uh, but TMI I, here, you know. Okay. All right, all right, all right. So uh, let's start with that. Uh, Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers, "How is uncover nakedness used in the Bible?" Yeah, it's used uh, at least in uh, one very direct way uh, in Leviticus uh, 18. And uh, uh, this, uh, uh, the caller who had this question uh, pointed this out, that there's several different uh, things that are prohibited as far as having sexual relations with relatives or, or uh, spouses of relatives. And this expression is used repeatedly in that passage about they shall not uncover their nakedness. In other words, they will not have uh, sex with them. And so that is one way in which this is used. You have to be careful, though, to assign in the Bible the exact same 
meaning to an expression in every passage because that can get you in trouble. Mm -hmm. Uh, This is, uh, I don't think it's a valid interpretive uh, principle. So it may mean that there was some kind of sordid incest that took place here between Ham and his father. Okay. But it may be that he just disgraced and embarrassed, humiliated his father by staring at him or leering over him in Mm -hmm. his nakedness because he's not just naked here, he's drunk. Drunk and naked. And that's really awful kind of embarrassing situation for somebody to be in Mm -hmm. that uh, it easily could go in that direction as well. And I don't think we can draw a conclusion on it, Bill. Mm -hmm. I think we have to leave it there. Was there a a certain standard for modesty or protocol? I mean, I remember even in the the parable of the prodigal um, son where the father is running towards his son where he raises his robe and runs because you wouldn't want to show your legs. No. And so what, yeah. what's with that? Well, that's, I mean, that's just a, a part of customary things going on. I don't think this is an issue of modesty. I think it's an issue of respect towards your parents. Mm-hmm. That this is, these, you know, if I want to be real crass about it, these are the loins with, which created you. Mm-hmm. And now you're looking upon this and maybe staring or leering at it. This would be terribly dishonoring to his father, even if it just ended there and didn't go into more of this sordid sexual kinds of innuendo there. Mm-hmm. So what about Habakkuk 2.15 that says, Woe to you who make your neighbors drink, who mix in your venom, even to make them drunk, so as to look on their nakedness. Yeah. So is this a sexual relations thing? It could be. Okay. The context of this, though, this is a denouncement of Babylon. Habakkuk is prophesying here just before Babylon comes in and destroys Judah and takes them off to captivity. And so this is a taunt of Babylon and their evil and their wickedness. The you here is Babylon. You make your neighbors drink, metaphorically speaking, Mm. so you can expose them and you can uh, dominate them and completely control them. So I don't know if I'd go too far with this to say that you can actually rape them, although this was a a very present and real thing in these days, too, when it came to marauding armies, that the the women usually uh, were not respected. So... It, uh, but I, I would not take that much farther than that. Okay. This is this is a denouncement of Babylon, saying you will face accountability for what you've done to the nations. Mm-hmm. But the the other two brothers uh, went to great extent to make sure mm-hmm. they did not look upon the nakedness of their father. Mm-hmm. So, verse twenty three. But Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it upon both their shoulders and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. And their faces were turned away, so they did not see their father's nakedness. Now, that's more explicit. It's not anything they're doing sexually there. They don't want to disrespect their father by looking at him uh, in this pitiful condition that he's in. Mm -hmm. But, you know, we have to leave that door open, unfortunately, Bill, that this could have gone further into sexual things. Uh, We were just talking about it before the show started. Remember the context for this in Noah? This is a really corrupt time for humanity on Earth. Mm -hmm. And Noah here is demonstrating that even though he survived the flood, he still is jumping right back and doing wrong things here by getting drunk and having all this sordid stuff taking place and curses coming about. And I remember before the flood, Genesis 6... The Lord saw the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and I just the extreme of this, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. 
Every, this, this is humanity, only, right? Continually, yes. And, and so that's... Only evil continually. Yes. Every thought. pretty amazing. That, well, it's, it's hyperbolic language. It's every thought only continually Whoa. evil. Yeah. I mean, triple dose of that, so you yeah, get yeah. the point. Yeah. So it, it, this is a, a sordid, terrible time, and you can't think that Noah's family wasn't affected by that. Mm-hmm. But when Noah awoke from his wine, from his little drunk stupor, it says in Genesis 9 that he knew what his youngest son had done to him. Yep. And we're not really sure what that is, and we're guessing... It wasn't good. It wasn't good, yeah. Right. So he said, cursed be Canaan. Yeah. Now, Canaan is the son of Ham. And we have to be careful here because Exodus makes it clear that the sons will not suffer for the sins of the fathers. But what this shows is it's a generational curse. And you have to remember Canaan by this time, the people that Moses is writing this to knew perfectly well who the Canaanites were Mm -hmm. and the Amorites. In fact, in a few chapters from now in Genesis 15, when the promise comes to Abraham, uh, God makes it explicit that his descendants will go into Egypt for 400 years and they will come out and they're in there for 400 years because the sin of the Amorite, which is another name for the Canaanites, Mm -hmm. the sin of the Amorite has not yet been completed. So these people will be aware when the word Canaan is used. Mm-hmm. I think that Moses might be using this to point to directly to who they're facing, the Canaanites here. They may not recognize it with Ham. Mm-hmm. Was there something about the other two brothers not looking upon the nakedness of their father because they did not want that image in their head? You know, not unlike the way the image yeah. of a pornographic image can right. be forever stuck in your brain and you don't get it out. It may be some of the repercussions of this, but I don't know if that's what they were thinking at the time. I think it was much more a respect issue toward their dad. Okay. All right. I think it's time to take a little break. Dr. Mark Muska is my guest in studio, so please let me know what your questions are. It can be anything that you have uh, wondered about in Scripture. You've got a verse. You've got a passage. You've got a chapter. Let us know what it is. You can send the question over via text at 877-933-2484. Or if you'd like email instead, email me, bill at myfaithradio.com. Maybe that's easier for you to remember. Bill at myfaithradio.com or text line is 877-93-FAITH. back with Dr. Mark Muska, Ask the Professor. So anything you got for us, let me know what it is. 877-933-2484. Again, 877-933-2484. This week we talked about uh, the idea of, uh, is God in control? We've talked about God's sovereignty. We've done all kinds of discussions this week about that, Mark. And oh, yeah. a mm-hmm. listener wanted to know, is there a difference between God in control and God being sovereign? Yeah, that I mean, you can you can slice it kind of thin there if you're not careful. That uh, that God is control in control. He is omnipotent. There's nothing that happens in the universe without Him at the very least allowing it, if not directly causing it. And so He's in control, and that makes Him sovereign. Whoever has that kind of control over the universe is sovereign. They rule. That's what the word sovereign means: is to rule. So. Okay, I like it. Mm-hmm. In Mark uh, chapter nine, mm-hmm. we've got a passage where. 
uh, a man brings his son who's possessed by a spirit that has robbed him of speech. Mm-hmm. It says, whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not. Mm -hmm. And Jesus says, you unbelieving generation, how long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. So they brought him. When the spirit saw Jesus, it immediately threw the boy into a convulsion. Mm -hmm. So the spirit knew who he was confronting. Oh, yeah. He fell to the ground and rolled around, foaming at the mouth. Jesus asked the boy's father, how long has he been like this? From childhood, he answered. It has often thrown him into fire or water to kill him. Mm -hmm. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. If you can, said Hmm. Jesus, (laughs) everything is possible for one who believes. I love that response. If you can do Mm -hmm. anything, take pity on us and help us. And his response, Jesus' response is, if you can. Yeah. Is is there some major sarcasm there? Oh, I don't know about sarcasm, but Jesus is going to call out something, you okay. know, that this guy, he believes, but he kind of doesn't believe either. And, you know, we got to give him a break. That's the way most of our faith is. There's very few times we're just completely convinced in faith of something. There's always lingering questions or doubts there, but we believe it. But, yeah, if you can, if you're able to do it, and Jesus is going to point out, you bet I can do it. He's <laughs> gonna, I love. He's going to uh, correct that right away. He does this other times as well. Uh, one time he's confronted by a man who says, good teacher, uh, what this and that. And Jesus says, good teacher, uh, the only one who is good is God alone. And so he's not a, a, a shy to make an issue out of the way people even address him. Mm-hmm. So uh, this is, it's a teachable moment. It helps them to know. Yeah. Might that be confusing to the new Bible student? You know, there's no one good but God alone. Yeah. And don't we look at Jesus and go, mm, aren't you, you are God. That's right. And so he's making a point. So this, this is Jesus' point. I am, this is a, a claim to deity here, kind of a, a roundabout way of doing it, but I am God. He never comes out and just says that. Don't you wish he would have had a whistle or something like that? And he could have just said, okay, everybody quiet. I want to just clarify something. I am God, second person of the Trinity, eternal son. Jesus is never that direct. He always draws people to come to that conclusion. Mm-hmm. I like that. Um, I'm trying to quickly find a passage sure. um, because it's one of my all-time favorites, and you'd think I would have it then uh, right at my fingertips. Um, but it's when Jesus is confronting the woman at the well. Oh, yeah, that's John 4. John 4, that's what I, yeah, that's mm-hmm. what I got. And basically she's saying, well, you know, when this Messiah comes, he's going to sort it all out. Mm-hmm. Yep. And he goes, you know that Messiah you're talking about? I'm him. <laughs> it's awesome. I uh, talk about that moment where you, the goosebumps just s- yep come alive on. And she goes berserk. She goes running into the town. Yeah, right. And announces it. Everybody comes out to see Jesus. She's quite an evangelist. <laughs> yeah. Meet a man mm-hmm. who taught me, told me everything I've ever done. And mm-hmm. so here they come. So that's pretty cool. Yeah. So when people come to Jesus for something, isn't it usually uh, the result where you are going to be asked? to do something more than you ever imagined, but you're going to be getting something more than you ever imagined? Jesus has a habit of doing that. He does, doesn't he? Where he escalates and he he brings the whole topic to a higher level. He does it here with this woman at the well. He asks her for a drink and she says, you know, well, how is it you being a Jew is asking me, a Samaritan, for a drink? And Jesus just elevates it in verse 10 when he says, Jesus answered and said to her, 
if you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, <laughs> you would mm-hmm. have asked him and he would have given you living water. Yeah. Now talk about drawing her right to another level there. Mm-hmm. Can't you just see her kind of half smiling, looking around going, uh, uh, who are you? <laughs> right. <laughs> if you knew who it was yeah. that asked you for a drink. And so he's he's a pro at doing that. Yeah. It's just, it's fabulous the way he is able. I wish I had this ability more and more of being able to, to steer conversations in a direction that they're substantive. They have to do with important things like eternal life, yeah. like uh, knowing God. And yeah. it's a, a real gift that some people have to be able to n- just naturally within conversation escalate it like that to the place he wants to go. Mm-hmm. I just got to throw in too, Bill, that uh, TV series I've talked to you about, about The Chosen. Oh, yeah. This is the last episode in the first season, so episode eight with the woman at the well. It will make you cry to oh, watch really? it. Cool. It is so powerful the way that that's portrayed in that television series. I'm watching online now, and they're shooting uh, season two now, and they're having a lot of fun with it, uh, getting these episodes uh, uh, done. I can't wait for the the second season to be coming out. My wife and I have watched the first season a couple times already, and we still love watching it. That's great. Mm -hmm. But you take someone like Jairus, and he came to Jesus because he had a daughter who needed the healing of a fever, and then all of a sudden he had to start believing in something more than just a fever. He had to believe that maybe Jesus could raise her from the dead. Yep. Um, so it seems like oftentimes we come to God asking him for something and he has us uh, believe for something greater than what we're asking for. It's called blowing out the walls, Bill. Yeah. <laughs> he takes us out of those. He does the same thing with Mary and Martha when Lazarus dies. Oh, if you would have only been here, right. Lord, he would not have died. Right. <laughs> you know, he treated Mary and Martha so different. Mm-hmm. One he just wept with, and the other one he sort of confronted. You know, I'm the, mm-hmm. I'm the resurrection and the life. I mean, he's kind mm-hmm. of... Two different women with two different needs. I know, know? but this is how he meets our needs individually. But yet they've got individual things going on there. Yeah, so pretty, pretty, pretty cool, pretty amazing. All right, Um, I know you got questions. Let me know what they are. I've got a question that just came in. I think we'll touch on this when we come back from break. Uh, We're going to go to break here in about a minute. Okay. uh, Just to give you a heads up, this question comes up kind of regularly, and and that's that verse in Timothy stating that women should be silent in church and not be involved in teaching men in the church. That's what we call the tease. uh, You know, I I think, Bill, I remembered, I got to do something here. I'll see you later, okay? I I don't know if I can answer that question. Mark's leaving for the day. Yeah, you're going to lock the door on (laughs) me, aren't you? (laughs) Yeah. That's a tough passage, so let's get into it a little bit. uh, Well, I think we're going to, yeah, probably try to jump into that after the break. Works Uh, for me. Yeah. So that means we've got lots of opportunities to take your questions. Let me know what they are. There's two ways you can get them to me. One would be texting, and that's 877-93-FAITH. And the other way would be to email me, bill at myfaithradio.com. So whatever's easier for you to remember, bill at myfaithradio.com or 877-933-2484. Dr. Mark Muska is my guest. You can bet we'll be right back.
right, we are back with Dr. Mark Musk. What a great song. Uh, Thank you. You were dancing during that. That I was was not. Nobody wants to see that. (laughs) I saw it as dancing. It's got to be better to to be dancing. It's it's not good enough to be dancing. (laughs) Mm. All right, let's go back to some questions. They're loading up here, Mark. So let's see. Can you explain the verse in Timothy stating that women should be silent in church and not be involved in teaching men in the church? Yeah, this is a powder cork of a a passage here where Paul is instructing Timothy about the way that the church should run. And he gets into things here about differences between women and men in uh, chapter 2. He talks about everyone praying and praying for kings and everything like that. And then he gets into this where he says... Uh, in verse 8 of 1 Timothy chapter 2, he says, Therefore, I want men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without wrath, wrath and dissonance. Now, we think men there, it's probably both men and women, but it isn't, because in the next verse, he says, Likewise, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly, discreetly, not with braided hair and gold pearls or costly garments, but rather by means of good works as is proper for women, making a claim to godliness. And I'm coming to it here. A woman must quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness. But I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. For it was Adam who was first created, and then Eve. And it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. But women will be preserved through the bearing of children if they continue in faith and love and sanctity with self-restraint. Now, there's enough to get us bombed for about three months right there. Mm-hmm. There's so many issues that come out of that. Yeah, don't do this to me. But the whole idea of women remaining uh, silent in the church, Paul is saying here that he 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 uh, pro uh, claims that men are to be the ones who teach or exercise authority in the church and not women. He gets into this with the eldership or overseer role in chapter 3, verse 1, when he says, if any man aspires to the office of overseer, it's a fine work he desires to do. But now we jump right into a huge contemporary question about the role of men and women in the church and whether women can assume roles of leadership within the church. And it seems as though Paul's talking about leadership over the whole church here. So it's not like you're just uh, leading in the Sunday school or you're leading in the missions committee or something like that. But oversight of the church as a whole, the way this is read, uh, one way to read it here is to say uh, this is something that Paul wants men to step in and be in that role of teaching and having authority over the church, and women are not to be in that role. Now, there's another view of that today, though, that uh, explains this by saying this was a culturally uh, contextualized situation that Paul's dealing with in the first century here, and the way that the society at large worked with men and women. And now we have a different uh, whole society today that we live in, and so this is not... uh, is not intended to be some timeless teaching for the church for all time, that many Bible-believing, God-loving churches today will open the door for both men and women to serve in this leadership role, oversight over the entire church. So I wish I could just lead you through this thing and guide you nicely and neatly to some kind of conclusion. It's not going to happen today Mm -hmm. because there's too many things to take into account that we just can't account for in five minutes of talking about it on the radio. Here's another additional question to this discussion, Mark. Doesn't it uh, have a lot to do with the lack of men taking a role? Well, this is, I think it's a good point to make here, is that a lot of people accuse women of wanting to assert 
uh, themselves and become leaders in the church and they become uh, real dominating and they want to take over the church and lead the church. Uh, that may be the case sometimes, but there is a valid point to be made. What happens when the men wimp out on this mm-hmm. and they don't step up and lead the church the way they're supposed to? Are the women just supposed to stand by there and let the whole thing fall apart? Or are they to take leadership in this? Bill, in particular, where this plays itself out historically is with missions work, because so much of the mission field has been dominated by women who have gone out onto the field. Mm -hmm. And what are they supposed to do if they're doing evangelistic work out in places where there are no churches, and the only uh, people that are there are women to lead in this effort and to get the church started. So even those who believe that this is a role for men to assume in the church of Mm -hmm. leadership, there's a point of being realistic here as well. So men need to wake up and step up into their roles of leadership in the church. I would say that for both men and women. There's all kinds of other things that women can do in the church if this, in fact, restricts them from that general oversight of a position in the church. So uh, we can go on about this, but uh, it's it's a well-developed discussion. Uh, you do some uh, research on the Internet, and you'll find some really great uh, people who agree that the Scriptures are, 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 are true, that we need to follow the, the teaching of the Scripture— now, the knot we're trying to untangle, though, is what does the Scripture actually teach? Mm-hmm. That's the question. Okay. So if you have your Bibles uh, handy, flop it open to John chapter 3. We're going to talk about Nicodemus. The question the listener wants to know is, do you think Nicodemus chose God but was a closet Christian because the religious leaders expected him to go with the world? Yeah, that's a good question. It's speculative. We just don't know. Nicodemus, he's just an, a very interesting character. I love just the first two verses of John 3 there, where it says, Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. So he just wasn't a Pharisee. He was an upper, upper kind of Pharisee, okay? He came to Jesus by night and said to Jesus, Rabbi, we know that you've come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And that's quite an admission. A lot of Pharisees were not willing to admit that. They were attributing Jesus' work to the power of Satan. In Matthew chapter 12, They, uh, when Jesus heals a man that's both blind and cannot talk, they attribute that to Beelzebul, the prince of demons. Mm-hmm. So Nicodemus, he recognizes it. He's at the very least close to faith, although Jesus rebukes him. The first thing out of Nicodemus's mouth was, we know that you've come from God. And Jesus says to him, unless you're born again, you can't even see the kingdom of God. It's Mm -hmm. as if he's saying to him, you don't know anything close to what you think you know. There's so much more for you to know once your eyes are open, when you're reborn. So I have great hope for Nicodemus. Uh, He may be part of the group that John himself at the end of Jesus' public ministry, uh, John criticizes those who were believing in Jesus but weren't openly admitting it because they were afraid of the Jews. It's over here in John chapter 12, right at the end of Jesus' public ministry. And uh, let's see here. Yeah, verse 42, John 12, 42. Nevertheless, even many of the rulers believed in Jesus, but because of the Pharisees, they were not confessing him for fear that they would be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the approval of men rather than the approval of God. Mm. And I might, I think they might be talking about Nicodemus there. Okay. Now, the good thing about that is 
later in John's gospel, this is kind of a survey through John here, but when Jesus is dead and they're taking him down off the cross, uh, verse 38, it says here that after these things, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but a secret one for fear of the Jews. So he fits what John said in John 12 as well. He asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate granted permission, so he came and took away the body. Nicodemus, who had first come to Jesus by night, also came, bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 100 pounds weight. They took the body of Jesus, bound it in linen, and they buried him. So I'm hopeful we're going to see Joseph and Nicodemus in heaven, that it at the time, this was his coming out party as a Christian, you know, <laughs> mm-hmm. he was, he was now willing to stand publicly as someone who loved Jesus. All right, Mark, here's another softball question for you. Oh can, man. Can you explain the difference between the Trinity, specifically the between Holy Spirit? Between the Trinity, what? There's only one Trinity. So between the Trinity, what? The I persons of the Trinity? I'm assuming oh, that's the question. Yeah. yeah. Can you explain the difference between the Trinity, but focus specifically on the Holy Spirit. Yeah, this is such a good question, Bill. In fact, I, agree. I hope that people can respect church history here because there's so much that the church has hammered out over the centuries that we benefit from today. So very rarely will we have a problem in Bible-believing churches in believing in the Trinity. And that took literally centuries for the church to work it out exactly what the teaching on the Trinity is in the Christian church. And so uh, the what the church came out with, if you want a little formula for it, they taught that the Trinity means that God exists in three persons, but one essence or one substance. So he is one God in essence and substance, but he also exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. And now that's not so easy to positively teach. Most of the time the church rejects things negatively that get it wrong about the Trinity. So the Father is not superior over the Son and the Spirit. All three are co-equal as divine, Mm -hmm. fully persons in their own right, and yet God is only one. So the church rejected tritheism, that God is three gods. No, one God in essence three gods in person, but it also rejected the idea that God was one God and one person who manifested himself in three different modes or forms or roles. That, by the way, is still popular in the church today. Hmm. Sometimes it's called oneness Pentecostalism or Jesus-only Pentecostalism, that they believe that they do not believe in the classic case of the Trinity. They believe God is only one person who manifests himself in three roles or three forms. And so Uh, It's still being discussed today. But the role of the Spirit, in particular, the Spirit is treated as a person, not as some impersonal force of God or the Father. For example, Jesus says you can blaspheme the Holy Spirit. You can talk down the Holy Spirit. You can't do that to an it. You got to do that to a person. All right. The Holy Spirit is called the Advocate by Jesus in John 14, 15, and 16. Well, the same word advocate is used for Jesus in 1 John 2. So there's evidence here for the personhood of the Spirit. He is a distinct member of the Trinity. I just like it in the Great Commission in Matthew 28, 
where Jesus says, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So all three are named there as persons in the Trinity. Mm-hmm. So, uh, But you think you're going to answer all the questions about this? Uh, give it up right now. You never will. Every analogy that's ever been given always breaks down under scrutiny. So this is something we have to respect the mystery of it, that we're, we're not going to be able to make complete sense about this. But there's no question that the Bible teaches it. Yeah. Mark, what is the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? Yeah, that's a very serious passage in Matthew chapter 12, where uh, Jesus uh, comes and he finds this man who cannot speak and he cannot see, and it's associated with demonization, Mm -hmm. that the demons are blinding him and keeping him from talking. And Jesus heals the guy, uh, the Pharisees flip out. They can't deny the miracle. Everybody knows this guy couldn't talk or see, so they deny the source of the miracle. They Mm -hmm. say this man does this through the power of Beelzebul, the prince of demons. And man, does Jesus hammer him on that one. In verse 25 of Matthew 12, And knowing their thoughts, Jesus said to them, Any kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and any city or house divided against itself will not stand. If Satan casts out Satan, he's divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? In other words, he's saying, that's just stupid. Satan doesn't fight Satan. Satan Satan fights God. So no way is this Satan. But then it gets really serious when he goes down and he says, he who is with me, verse 30, he who is with me is against me. He who does not gather with me scattered. Therefore, I say to you, any sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven people, but blasphemy against the Spirit shall not be forgiven. Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, me, shall be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it shall not be forgiven him, either in this age or in the age to come. Okay, that's as serious as it gets. That is. There is no coming back from Mm, that. Wow. When we blaspheme the Spirit. What does it mean to blaspheme? It means to tear down. It's the opposite of glorifying. When you glorify God, you lift him up. When you blaspheme God, you tear him down. And so specifically what this blasphemy is here, it's attributing the work of the Holy Spirit to demonic power. The good, wonderful, merciful, compassionate Spirit who healed this man, they're saying this came through the power of the father of lies, who is a murderer and a liar from the beginning, you can't get any worse mm-hmm. than that. I've heard people say if they've rejected Jesus, they have in fact blasphemed the Holy Spirit. That you doesn't don't sound see, true, does it? Well, you don't, you don't see that connected in the scriptures, okay. but I think it's a feasible theory. Sure. But the idea is here, when someone gets to the point where they blatantly see the work of God done in front of them through the power of the third person of the Trinity, and they attribute that to demonic power, they've crossed a line they can't get back. Mm-hmm. I have a couple uh, minutes left for questions, and if you would like to send me a text, that number is 877-93-FAITH, 877-933-2484, 877-933-2484, or you can email me, bill at myfaithradio.com. Be right back.
Welcome back to the show. Dr. Mark Muska is my guest in studio. It's always nice to see his smiling face. And, okay, questions are just coming in. So here's another one, Mark. You ready for this one? I don't know. Yeah. What is your view of sensationism versus continuationism? Yeah, it's a cessationism, like cease. I said that, didn't I? You said sensation, oh, like I it's sensational. I, I, I couldn't read it. People do it all the time. You <laughs> no, know? seriously, did I? You did get really tangled, you know? So. Uh, cessationism. Cessationism and continuanism is a, 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 a tricky one, too. Okay. You, you sound like right you got marbles time. in your mouth. Well, you maybe know? I do. And that's bad in radio, Bill. You know, <laughs> you, you can't make up for it with that uh, smiling, handsome face. All yours, right, so. all right. Yeah, so... Anyway, cessationism and continuism, this is a discussion that Christians, Bible-believing, God-loving Christians have about the Holy Spirit's gifts. In particular, uh, there's usually uh, five or six of them that are singled out, that are these gifts still active in the church? The gifts usually that are listed are gifts of apostleship. These are all in 1 Corinthians 12, by the way. Apostleship, prophecy, works of power or miracles, sometimes they're called, uh, gifts of healings, tongues, and interpretation of tongues. Okay. Those six. And sometimes people add a seventh one, the gift of knowledge or the gift of discernment. Uh, sometimes people call these the sign gifts of the Holy Spirit, that they are indicators of God's uh, power being displayed and of the gospel message being true. Now, have those gifts ceased cessationism, were they used in the first century to uh, to uh, attest to the power of the gospel and to validate the gospel writer or the uh, the apostles as being from God? But then uh, did they cease by the end of the apostolic age or by the end of the first century so that now they are no longer active? Or have they continued? You hear continualism there. Did Have they continued through the century? And the $500 question is, are they still active today in the church? Or have they ceased? All right? Uh, this is a discussion that really got ramped up about 120 years ago when the Pentecostal movement was born, because those in the Pentecostal tradition were claiming that these sign gifts were active again. For a long time, from the first century until about the 1800s, these gifts uh, really didn't manifest themselves all that commonly in the church. But now, last 120 years, uh, explosion of claims, of healings, of works of power, of prophecy, people possessing these gifts to be able to minister to people. And so... uh, cessationists will say, no, uh, those gifts ceased. What's happening today, uh, whether it's from God or not, uh, that's something we have to try to discern. But it certainly isn't what was going on in the first century Mm -hmm. with these sign gifts being active in the church. Uh, One of the passages to get argued over, believe it or not, Bill, is 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter. Mm -hmm. Because after Paul gets done talking about the the value of love, and it doesn't matter what kind of gifts you have, if you don't have love, you're nothing. Mm-hmm. You're a clanging cymbal and a, and a gong. But then he goes on in verse 8 of 1 Corinthians 13, and he says, Love never fails, but if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away. If there are tongues, they will cease. There's that word, cease. If there is knowledge or this discernment gift, it will be done away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away with. When I was a child, I used to speak like a child, think like a child, reason like a child. 
When I became a man, I did away with childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully, just as I also have been fully known. But faith, hope, love, abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. Mm -hmm. So it quite clearly says that these gifts of prophecy, tongues, and knowledge will cease. So the question is, when will they cease? It's all contingent on that verse 10. But when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. What is that perfect? And the sense of that is the perfect thing comes. Now, what is that perfect thing? Those typically who are cessationist build, they will say that that perfect thing was the completion of the New Testament scriptures. Mm -hmm. That during the first century, when the scriptures weren't complete, that's when we needed these gifts of knowledge. Notice all three are revelatory gifts, giving us truth from God, Mm -hmm. revelation, tongues interpreted, and knowledge. But then when the scriptures were completed, the use for these gifts ceased, and so they ceased, and so they're no longer active. That's Typically, not all cessationists will argue that, but that's typically what they'll say. Okay. That the thing is the completion of the scriptures. Gotcha. Thus, continualists will point to the perfect thing being the return of Christ. And there seems to be evidence for that. We see in a mirror dimly now, but then we'll see face to face the Mm -hmm. Lord Jesus. And since Jesus hasn't come back yet, these gifts continue to be active in the church. And Mm -hmm. so that's about as brief as I can be with a question yeah, like that. There's plenty of other scripture we can look at with this thing, but it is a point of contention between those who come from Pentecostal and charismatic traditions and those who don't. Mm-hmm. We have a couple more questions Okay, we probably don't have time for, but um, there's a lot pouring in right now. This one uh, came in from uh, a listener that says, when people say God is allowing all the rape, murder, torture, child abuse, etc. in the world, isn't that blaspheming the Holy Spirit? No. Okay. Because God has chosen in his perfect will to allow a whole lot of things happen that he could easily stop in 15 different ways. But for reasons sometimes we don't understand, he allows this evil to proliferate on the earth. Mm-hmm. And that is not blaspheming God. That is recognizing that he limits the extent to which he exerts his will over the earth. Okay. Thank you for that. Here's another one. I've had a hard time seeing and declaring that certain Holy Spirit-led interactions are clearly from God. Mm -hmm. Everyone close to me has been warning me that Satan is trying to tear me down and weaken me. It's getting harder to declare declare that the good things I've been given are from God. How do I trust God more and get back to him where I when I feel so far and getting more entangled by Satan's schemes. Yeah, boy, that's a tough one to just talk uh, about I off know. the top of the head. Here, I get you know? it. We'd have to it. really get into a conversation, I, I get think. It. That's a counseling thing almost, isn't it? Well, it could turn into that, but it, you know, to just get more details about what he's talking about mm-hmm. and specific issues that he's, he or she is facing. So Yeah, appreciate that. just don't know. No, that's a tough one. Um, so thank you, Mark. I know we're getting a little bit uh, out of time here. So that, that kind of went fast, didn't it? It always does. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But it's fun. I love these people. Keep on too. asking questions. Keep on studying the Scripture and getting into those tough ones. I don't care if I can't answer them all. That just means I'm not God, and neither are you. But this is really exciting to see people wrestling with interpreting mm-hmm. the Scriptures yeah. and understanding Christian teaching that comes from it. How, more power to yeah. you. How would students go about learning more about church history? Because that's probably one thing that 
people don't focus on very much, do they? There's some really great books out there on church it, history. Yeah, I don't just... have them right off the tip yeah. of my tongue here, but if you would uh, do a, 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 a search, ask one of the church history professors at Northwestern. There's reader-friendly versions that won't just tie in knots as Ooh, far as I want. all the complications to it to make it something that's introductory where you can get a sense for the flow of history of the church. Because without context, you know, it's so hard to understand Scripture. Right, right. Yeah. And it's sometimes hard to understand people through the centuries, and sometimes we're awfully hard on them because we don't recognize what they faced and the lives that they lived, the challenges. Yeah. Mark, thank you for being here. Sure. Thanks. It's always it's fun. Always fun. It thank is. you for saying yes to my invitation. That means a lot to me. You I bet. Really, All the time. I really appreciate you, Mark. Mosca. And this Ryan guy's okay, too, isn't he's he? He's okay. Yeah. yeah, he's okay. Yeah. 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 All right. That wraps up this hour of Ask the Professor with Dr. Mark Muska. Coming up next, Dr. John Woodward is going to talk about the rejection syndrome versus being accepted in Christ. That's an encore performance. That's all coming up next in just a few minutes. We'll be right back. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.